All right, so we're going to keep going with our um, podcast for uh, examination preparation, and I'm here with uh, Dr. Jeff Dewey, who's a, an assistant professor of neurology in our department, and we're going to review neuromuscular disorders. Uh, we'll try to get through what we can, Jeff. Uh, it's probably going to be necessary over the future times to dive deeper into some of these topics, but uh, maybe we'll just get started and provide at least an overview to, to residents for that. So thanks for coming, Jeff. Thank you. So, uh, Jeff, uh, let's start with, I thought the one way we could organize this is by sort of going from proximal to distal through the peripheral uh, nervous system. And if we uh, do that, we're going to start with the uh, motor nerve. I think we'll, we'll, we will not discuss the spinal cord, uh, which is really part of the uh, central nervous system, except for the motor neuron. Then we'll talk about plexus disorders. We'll talk about disorders of the peripheral nerve disorders of the neuromuscular junction, and then finally an overview of disorders of muscles. And of course, that's an enormous amount of information. So I think this will be an overview of some of the highlights that are seen on examinations. And then we can dive deeper in future podcasts. So uh, Jeff, what are sort of the major disorders of the motor nerve that residents need to know about for exam prep? Uh, I think the one we think about the most often would be ALS, which is really, it's a spectrum of disorders. So we think of the classic form of ALS as a combination of upper and lower motor neuron uh, symptoms, and that's probably true. Uh, when we say ALS, that's really what we mean. Uh, so by upper motor neuron, I mean uh, spasticity is primarily the manifestation you'll see on exam, and then lo lower motor neuron, you'll see atrophy, fasciculations, uh, flaccidity of the muscle as a whole. Uh, and so you're really seeing a mix of those. If you think about how we diagnose it clinically, it really is based on the observation of those combinations. So uh, the, call these the Ellis-Goriel criteria, but uh, basically you're looking for combined upper and lower motor neuron uh, symptoms in various segments, if you will, of the nervous system. So that would be bulbar, cervical, thoracic, and lumbar. Uh, and of course, an upper motor neuron sign would be hyperreflexia, and then lower motor neuron signs are the things I mentioned. <coughs> if you get it in, the ideal is you find that in three segments, and usually that's going to be bulbar, cervical, and lumbar, just based on what you can examine. If you find combined symptoms in all those segments, then you can say that it's clinically definite ALS. If you find it in two of the three segments, then you say it's clinically probable, and one of the three segments, it's clinically possible. That's the, the really uh, simplified version of the criteria. There's also a probable with laboratory support, and that's when you see findings on EMG. <clears throat> and I think we're sort of outside of the um, uh, an overview of EMGs, and maybe we'll have to come uh, get you back and we'll discuss EMG, but what are some of the classic EMG findings we would see in a disorder of the motor nerve? Uh, so EMG and nerve conduction study findings, and what might be a clue that there's a problem with uh, the motor nerve specifically? Uh, so on the nerve conduction study portion, it's often normal. Uh, sometimes you do see decre decreased motor amplitudes, and that makes sense if you're getting a decreased signal to the motor, the nerve has degenerated sufficiently. Uh, but the sensory exam, as a rule of thumb, should be normal on the EMG unless someone has a superimposed uh, sensory neuropathy. Uh, the thing that really distinguishes a motor neuron disease uh, would be the needle study findings. And there you're looking at active denervation, again, in, in multiple of those segments, but the paraspinal muscles are what should really clue us in because these are, are the last place you would see a length-dependent neuropathy as opposed to in motor neuron disease. It's a little bit less selective based on nerve length. 
What are some of the uh, clinical variants of ALS? I think this is something that comes up uh, is uh, there's a couple of different uh, clinical variants of ALS that residents may need to be know about clinically and also may need to be aware of and recognize on examinations. So uh, PLS is the upper motor neuron form primary lateral sclerosis. Uh, and that's where you see almost, uh, almost all or, or very predominant upper motor neuron findings. And then progressive muscular atrophy, PMA, is the lower motor neuron variant where you see almost no upper motor neuron findings but a flaccid uh, progressive paresis. The key to all of these is that they're painless and that there should not be any paresthesias, numbness, radicular pain. Uh, the presence of those should make you think at least once or twice about an alternate diagnosis. Is there any difference in the clinical progression uh, between uh, these different subtypes, sort of your traditional ALS and then primary lateral sclerosis and progressive muscular atrophy? Are they different in any way? The variants actually tend to progress slower. So uh, patients will live much longer. Uh, they can be equally debilitated, um, but they, they tend to live a longer period of time. And uh, I think I'm aware that there are some, uh, there's a genetic variation of ALS that sometimes comes up on uh, examinations, and it's, uh, it's one of those sort of buzzwords. I know there's a number of uh, genes that have been implicated and investigated, uh, but there is one that seems to come up on examinations. So can you speak to that? Yeah, I think the one that probably everybody should know is the SOD1, superoxide dismutase 1 mutation. Uh, the way to tell those mutations is they, they tend to come on a little earlier in life. Uh, certainly a positive family history would be a clue, and there can be some anticipation over successive generations. I'll add that the other one that m is becoming more well-known uh, because of a certain uh, clinical idiosyncrasy is C9ORF, C9ORF, uh, 72 actually. And that one tends to present with uh, fairly prominent uh, dementia, dementing symptoms. Um. What, uh, what is the approach to treatment? I, uh, I think our residents would be well aware that there's no cure to ALS yet. Uh, people are working very hard on that. But what are some treatment um, uh, options that may come up and that residents need to know about clinically and, and when they're preparing for examinations? Yeah, the, the classic is uh, rilazole or rilotec. Uh, and that, we think, uh, works by inhibiting uh, uh, hyperexcitability and, and toxicity on the nerves. Uh, the one that's been FDA approved in the last two years and may start showing up on exams is Adaravone or Radicava. Uh, and that is a free radical scavenger that's been used uh, in ischemic stroke, but was approved by the FDA, I think, two years ago uh, and is given uh, via infusion. Both of those are thought to probably extend life in the disease. Neither is a cure. Uh, it's analogous to our treatment of Alzheimer's, where we're just sort of slowing things down. And then uh, symptomatic management, uh, some considerations and things that uh, come up on symptomatic management that are specific to ALS? Yeah, so things to know about would be uh, constipation is certainly one that, that comes up fairly frequently. Uh, bladder dysfunction is less common. Uh, I think things also worth knowing about would be that you're, you should expect some respiratory decline at some point in the illness. And so starting with non-invasive ventilation, then ultimately uh, ventilatory support is required uh, if patients wish it. And then uh, dysphagia is another issue that needs to be managed often with uh, a PEG tube. And I think the, the point is that we have to, be, we have to anticipate that uh, people will likely need uh, non-invasive ventilation at night, for example, and there's some evidence, I guess, that that improves quality of life uh, in people with ALS uh, over the short term. Uh, and then there needs to be proactive conversations about uh, nutritional supplementation early on. And I, I think there are some 
AN guidelines about how to have those discussions that sometimes comes up in uh, in uh, questions around the ethics and, and uh, professional practice and caring for people with ALS. Yeah, I think the rule of thumb is early and often uh, with those. Uh, one other thing I want to mention as far as symptomatic treatment, because this is a, a test-happy buzzword, is pseudobulbar affect. So that's a symptom that we uh, do see, and it <coughs> it's defined as... Uh, rapid and sometimes inappropriate swings in emotion, either in the positive or negative directions. Patients will laugh very easily or cry very easily. They're usually less distressed by it than their family members. So uh, one FDA-approved treatment is Nudexta, which is dextromethorphan and quinidine. Uh, we don't know exactly how it works, but it does seem to control those symptoms. So just to summarize around ALS, uh, a combination of upper and lower motor neuron findings. Uh, there should be no sensory abnormalities on uh, diagnostic testing or clinically. Um, the variants include primary lateral sclerosis and progressive muscular atrophy, uh, a genetic variant associated with uh, superoxide uh, dismutase uh, uh, 1 gene, SOD1 gene, sometimes comes up on tests. Um, uh, treatment of uh, symptoms, and pro, um, but probably not changing the outcome too much, is Riluzol, and then uh, the combination of uh, dextromethorphan and quinidine, uh, that might sometimes come up on exam, is something that can treat the uh, pseudobulbar affect. Um, there are a couple of other uh, disorders of the motor nerve, uh, and one that comes up in pediatrics is uh, spinal muscular atrophy. And I think there's a few different variations of spinal muscular atrophy. What do our residents, again, especially, let's say, adult neurology residents who are preparing for a board examination or an in-service examination, what are the things they need to know about SMA, spinal muscu muscular atrophy? So spinal muscular atrophy is a congenital disorder of the motor neuron. It's due to deletion of the SMN1, survival motor neuron 1 gene. Uh, there are four recognized uh, phenotypes, uh, and really they're differentiated by the age on which they come on uh, for at least uh, in-service exam and board prep purposes. And what determines those is actually the number of functional copies of SMN2 that exist in the patient's genome, and that's a, it's a ineffective version of the protein produced by SMN1 or less effective. And so the more copies they have, the more uh, poorly functional protein they produce and, and the better their phenotype is. So probably the one that uh, our residents would encounter in adults would be uh, SMA type 4. And that, that is generally patients who walk, uh, did I say 4? I meant 3, no 4. Yeah, patients who walk until adulthood uh, and then tend to lose function. And so often we'll see them uh, presenting in their late teens or even 20s, sometimes older, uh, with this slowly progressive weakness that can actually mimic uh, ALS to some degree, although the upper motor neuron symptoms are usually less prominent. Uh, childhood onsets are the types uh, 2 and 3, uh, 3 being juvenile, 2 being childhood, uh, and those, again, they just stop walking at an earlier age. Uh, many of the considerations as far as management are the same, uh, although often ventilatory function is less uh, primary of an issue and more of a secondary issue due to scoliosis and uh, thoracic deformities that happen due to early immobility. And I guess uh, with the uh, SMA disorders, some, uh, some emerging evidence that maybe uh, gene therapy could be a treatment for this. I think this is something that's early. Uh, yeah, so the Nusi Nursen is an antisense oligonucleotide that was FDA approved a few years ago and works to increase the number of copies or the production of survival motor neuron protein 2. 
So really, I think what residents need to know about spinal muscular atrophy is that these are progressive genetic disorders. Uh, they have variable severity uh, of presentation. Uh, they are a motor neuron problem, so they are going to lead to all of the things that you might see with a motor neuron disease, progressive weakness at various age to, age, ages. And they really need to be aware of the genetics, that there uh, is uh, two genes, survival motor neuron 1 and 2, uh, which are SMN 1 and 2, and the severity of the disease is really about, um, relates to how well the SMN2 gene is expressed, uh, how many copies of that are expressed and how much of that protein is generated. Is that right? Yep, that sounds good. Good, okay. So one other uh, motor neuron disease or motor neuronopathy uh, that does come up on examinations and is common enough that uh, residents may see it in clinical practice is Kennedy's disease. Can you talk just a little bit about Kennedy's disease? So Kennedy's disease is an X-linked congenital motor neuronopathy. And it's a disorder uh, in the antigen receptor coded on the X chromosome. Uh, it can present like a low, lower motor neuron variant of ALS. And so I often think of it as a, as a variant of motor neuron disease. The key on uh, clinical history would be uh, symptoms of endocrinopathy and particularly androgen uh, deficiency. So uh, I often will ask men, uh, have they been able to successfully father children? Uh, on exam, you can also see things like early balding and gynecomastia. Uh, and then, of course, the findings of lower motor neuron disease, so fasciculations, flaccidity, atrophy, hyporeflexia. Uh, it's not as much of a upper motor neuron presentation, and it tends to have a longer life expectancy than classic ALS. Um, let's move on to uh, brachial plexus disorder. So we're moving on to the uh, uh, a little bit more peripherally in the peripheral nervous system. We'll get to muscle eventually. Mm. Uh, and uh, what, are, what are the top... Um, knowledge points that people need to know about brachial plexus disorders and we're you know we're putting aside anatomy for right now because i think that is a big part of uh, both brachial and lumbosacral plexus but uh, that that frustrates uh, everyone from med students to senior neurologists but tell us a little bit about sort of the disorders and the etiological factors in, involved in these disorders uh, let me first say that we we should only put aside anatomy for so long because you're almost guaranteed to have a multi-part question uh, focusing on brachial plexus anatomy in either in-service exams or the boards. So it's imperative that you know it, uh, and often what people will do is uh, memorize it and write it down first thing when they get to the exam so they don't have to think about it again and they can refer to their own drawing. So that being said, let's talk about the clinical presentation of brachial plexopathies. I think there are probably uh, yeah, two to three that, that residents should really know. Uh, the first and, and probably the one that comes to everyone's mind uh, early would be Parsonage-Turner syndrome, which is really defined as an idiopathic brachial plexitis. Uh, the trigger is often unknown. We think it's probably a viral illness, but it can be triggered by uh, surgeries, particularly uh, spinal surgery or other orthopedic surgeries. Uh, uh, but patients may not even have infectious symptoms. The presenting symptom is often pain. So patients will experience a deep, difficult to describe pain that's thought to be a shoulder injury or sometimes something in the armpit. And as that pain subsides over a few days, they begin to notice that they're very weak uh, and possibly numb in the hand as well. And that distribution really depends on which part of the plexus is inflamed. Uh, it can be diagnosed with uh, an MRI if properly timed and an EMG if properly timed. Uh, the proper timing would be an early MRI or an EMG after at least a few weeks because it takes time for the denervation to develop such that it can be detected on EMG. Treatment is usually conservative. Uh, the evidence for steroids is more related to pain relief than actual uh, motor recovery, 
and patients can take over a year to recover with some recovery not uh, being complete. So it's not a guarantee that it will resolve. Uh, related to Parsonage Turner uh, would be uh, diabetic amyotrophy or uh, neuralgic amyotrophy. And that's thought to be microischemic damage to at least part of the brachial plexus uh, that can set on in a similar way with early pain uh, followed by uh, early onset weakness. The thing to differentiate between the two is there is not an itis in neuralgic amyotrophy. It's thought to be ischemic damage, and so there really is no role for anti-inflammatory therapy. Uh, again, recovery, I think prognosis is guarded uh, and certainly will take a long time. The key in those cases is glycemic control to prevent future uh, incidents. And I remember uh, with uh, diabetic amyotrophy, there's there's lots of different names and they may come up at different times. So I guess our residents need to just be aware of this syndrome. And this is a syndrome of a painful proximal single limb uh, neuropathy or, or uh, polyridiculopathy uh, uh, plexus uh, in involvement as well. Um, and, and my understanding is that it often happens in early onset diabetes, uh, with the first onset of diabetes, with the initiation of insulin therapy, and it's not necessarily the same as the diabetic polyneuropathy that you see, uh, you know, usually with, with later or, m or more advanced disease. You can often see this early on, and in fact, it can be one of the things that indicates somebody has new onset diabetes. And there are reports of it happening with uh, aggressive glycemic control using insulin, as you said. So uh, it is not necessarily a direct effect of hyperglycemia. Yeah, I think um, in both cases, that pattern of pain preceding the weakness of it being proximal more than distal uh, uh, both help. So I think Parsonage-Turner, which is the idiopathic brachial plexitis, uh, the more proximal uh, problem in the arm, uh, it needs to be, uh, residents need to know about, and they need to know about diabetic am amyotrophy, which is the plexopathy uh, in the leg. Any, any tips or tricks on EMG? I realize we're not talking about that right now, but, but any things that are sort of clues to a plexopathy? I think the one thing, well, if you know your anatomy, they'll give you enough muscles on any exam to trace it back to a part of the brachial plexus. But one thing that should definitely differentiate it is the paraspinal muscles should be spared. Uh, and in some cases, the most proximal muscles innervated by the brachial plexus are spared. That would be the uh, an uh, serratus anterior innervated by the long thoracic nerve and the supraspinatus and infraspinatus innervated by the suprascapular nerve. And um, uh, is it the anterior interosseous nerve that's classically involved in uh, Parsonage-Turner syndrome? I thought that was something that sometimes comes up on exams. This is an exam trivia thing. I haven't seen that one, but the, you've seen more than I have by virtue of your age. So. <laughs> well, we'll look that one up later and I'll, I might have to cut it out. Uh, so, um, I think it's also just worth mentioning before we move on, uh, some of the sort of secondary anatomic plexopathies. Uh, the most common being infiltration or direct compression from a pancoast or apical lung tumor. And that would affect the lower uh, roots and trunks of the plexus. Uh, thoracic outlet syndrome is often one that is talked about more than it's seen, but that again is a positional lower plexopathy uh, related to a tight thoracic outlet and compression of the lower parts of the plexus. And sometimes on exams, there's the question that comes up of somebody with a history of cancer, they have evidence of a plexopathy, and there's a question of whether it was related to radiation or uh, infiltration of new tumor. Uh, and uh, I remember uh, when I was studying for the uh, board examinations that there were a few classic features that could help you distinguish those two syndromes. So the first thing that comes to my mind is the history of radiation should be delayed. 
Uh, and also, you, radiation plexopathy tends to show more changes on an MRI of the brachial plexus as far as flare 2 hyperintensities and enhancement. What else did you have in mind? Uh, so th uh, the few uh, that I thought is that you see myokymia after post-radiation mm, yes, plexopathy. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but you do not see myokymia uh, um, from uh, infl inflammatory or, or sorry, infiltrative neoplastic plexopathy. Uh, yes, that's absolutely true. And the, the classic description of myokymia is marching soldiers on an EMG. And then uh, a couple of other things. I, uh, I think the, uh, the tumor which usually grows upward is going to affect the lower plexus. The radiation is more likely to affect the upper plexus, and as you said, uh, imaging finding can help, uh, that you'll see a lot more MRI changes uh, with the uh, neoplastic plexopathy than with the radiation plexopathy. Mm -hmm. You should be able to see the tumor directly in the plexus, so that would be the most uh, logical way to work that up. Great. Um, we're going to move on to neuropathies, and uh, this is something that I think most residents have experience with, uh, and they tend to have experience with the most common neuropathies. So maybe we'll spend more of our time talking about the less less common neuropathies. But but any um, any general points to make about um, uh, about length dependent polyneuropathies? Uh, it's I think it's worth knowing the American Academy of Neurology's practice guideline on how to work that up, uh, and so that. The tests that they recommend are B12 and metabolites, so methylmalonic acid or homocysteine, uh, serum protein electrophoresis, uh, and possibly immune fixation electrophoresis. People will often send uh, UPEP or urine protein electrophoresis as well. Uh, and then some measure of glucose tolerance are actually the three serologic tests that are recommended by the Academy. Uh, things you'll see people send uh, other times are thyroid stimulating hormone or some uh, thyroid panel as well. Uh, and then the question always comes up uh, whether or not to get an EMG. Uh, the guidelines are mixed on this, but the uh, American Academy of, uh, or the AANEM for short, uh, recommends EMG only if there's an additional question to be answered, but that a typical sen symmetric uh, sensory predominant distal polyneuropathy does not necessarily need an EMG unless they're atypical features. That's great. And... Um we will, uh, I don't think we'll talk about compression neuropathy because that's really more about uh, anatomy, but maybe we'll meet again and, and do some anatomy pearls and, and we can talk about some of the focal compression neuropathies at that point. Sure. A um, couple of things. Um, what, what might residents expect to see on EMG with uh, a peripheral polyneuropathy and what are sort of the patterns that, uh, that one might see? So these are typically sensory predominant if we're talking about the typical cases, and where you'll see that is the most distal sensory nerve. So in the legs, that would be the sural nerve or the superficial perineal nerve. In the arm, often we like to look at the radial nerve because it's less prone to entrapment or compression neuropathies, which can certainly skew your results. Uh, as neuropathies progress, you will see some motor involvement. The nature of the neuropathy or the pathophysiology really determines the EMG changes that you'll see. And I think we've driven this home a lot, but it's always worth repeating. So axonal neuropathies will affect the amplitudes, or the CMAP and SNAP amplitudes. And the demyelinating neuropathies will affect conduction velocities and measures of latency, distal latency. Sounds good. All right. Uh, then we have all sorts of secondary neuropathies. Uh, we, we talk about... Um, uh, uh, neuropathies related, you know, to diabetes or to monoclonal uh, um, protein, or sorry, monoclonal proteins, uh, to B12 deficiency. We've talked a little bit about that, and again, our residents have the most experience with that. But uh, they are often 
less comfortable with some of the other categories. And some categories I have put together include autoimmune neuropathies, other neuropathies or neuropathic processes related to uh, paraproteins. Um, we can talk a little bit more about diabetes and some of the subtypes of diabetes, infectious neuropathies, and then a big category of inherited polyneuropathies. And, uh, and these do come up on examinations commonly. So let's start with the autoimmune neuropathies. And can you talk through some of the big types of autoimmune neuropathies and maybe some uh, distinguishing features and things that come up on examinations about each of them? So I think the one we all think of first would be Guillain-Barre syndrome. Now that really is a spectrum of disorders as well, but what we usually mean when we say that is AIDP, so acute immune-mediated demyelinating polyradiculoneuropathy. Uh, and that classically is uh, distal predominant, and we think of it as an ascending pattern. Uh, it can be both sensory and motor, although it usually has uh, weakness as the primary complaint. Uh, but the sensory changes can be prominent, and it often can be very painful as these changes are happening. Of course, the classic exam finding is early loss of, of deep tendon reflexes, and that's due to proximal uh, radicular involvement throughout the, the spinal levels. Some of the more common variants that are worth knowing would be AMON, or acute motor axonal neuropathy. And as you can tell by its name, it tends to be motor-only findings. Uh, it can be rapidly progressive uh, and actually is often asymmetric in onset, uh, such that cases are mistaken for strokes early on until they begin to progress. And then AMSAN, or acute motor sensory, acute motor sensory axonal neuropathy, which uh, can look similar to AIDP, but on EMG should have an axonal appearance as opposed to a demyelinating appearance. Uh, one other one worth knowing is Miller-Fisher syndrome, and the thing that characterizes Miller-Fisher syndrome is an early involvement of the cranial nerves as well as an ataxia on examination. And in terms of uh, diagnostic tests that need to be done to uh, distinguish uh, some of these syndromes, I think some are associated with specific antibodies. Uh, uh, what are those? And so the ones worth knowing, uh, Miller-Fisher is probably the one you're most likely to see. And we're talking about serologic testing here, not uh, CSF testing. So Miller-Fisher is associated with the GQ1B antibody. And with the axonal motor, uh, or AMAN, acute motor axonal neuropathies, you'll often see uh, GD1B or GD1A antibodies. Okay, and that's good to know about. And again, uh, in terms of prognosis, uh, AIDP and Miller-Fisher variant tend to be predominantly demyelinating uh, uh, disorders and, uh, and AMAN and AMSAN, so immune, uh, acute motor uh, axonal neuropathy and acute motor and sensory axonal neuropathy or axonal, as their name implies. So what does that mean in terms of prognosis? It really comes down to the underlying pathophysiology. So with demyelination, all that's required for healing is regeneration of the myelinating cells in the periphery. And that can be over the course of weeks to a couple of months. And some of that is also rehabilitation of deconditioning. The axonal inflammatory neuropathies can take a long time to heal. Uh, I often give patients up to two years before we say they're done recovering. And that's due to the healing required from Wallerian degeneration which starts at the alpha motor neuron in the spinal cord and progresses distally at the rate of about an inch per month is what I tell patients. And that, that boils down to one to two uh, millimeters per day. What about some chronic uh, inflammatory um, polyneuropathy? So uh, uh, there's a couple that uh, I think that residents need to be aware of. So CIDP uh, is the one we think of the most chronic immune-mediated demyelinating polyradicular neuropathy. 
the thing that distinguishes acute from chronic is really the time window of symptom progression. So acute is generally agreed to have plateaued uh, within four weeks of onset. Chronic is agreed to continue after about eight weeks, and then there's this gray zone in the middle of subacute. Uh, but chronic is definitely eight weeks or longer. Uh, it can appear more motor than sensory early on, and it can often be asymmetric in onset. So it's not uh, as nicely uh, distally progressive and symmetric as AIDP is. Uh, it's diagnosed uh, like AIDP with a, a lumbar puncture showing uh, protein uh, cell dissociation, so elevated protein and normal cell count. CIDP is uh, usually more amenable to early EMG because patients have been suffering symptoms for long enough to develop changes. And again, you'll see demyelination on those. One thing that distinguishes CIDP from AIDP clinically is CIDP is generally responsive to steroids, whereas AIDP is not. The other one I think that's worth knowing is multifocal motor neuropathy with conduction block, or MMN-CB. Uh, this is associated with an anti-GM1 antibody, and it uh, can be a little bit confusing depending on when you see it. If you see it early on, it's somewhat easy to notice because patients will have sporadic uh, and asymmetric onset of single uh, neuropathies, but oftentimes patients only present after a period of time where these changes have become confluent and can appear more symmetric like a chronic demyelinating neuropathy. Uh, this, the thing that distinguishes the two is there should be no sensory involvement and you should see conduction block on an EMG and serologic testing generally reveals a positive antibody. And uh, what are the treatments for MMN typically? Uh, like most of these, it's immunosuppression. So steroids may or may not be effective. Often uh, more chronic treatments like IVIG are beneficial because they don't have the side effects of chronic steroids. All right. So I think the big autoimmune neuropathies that people need to know are AIDP, uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, or acute inflammatory demyelinating polyradiculoneuropathy, which has some variants or some uh, associated uh, disorders, including the two axonal variants, AMAN and AMSAN, and then Miller-Fisher syndrome. Uh, uh, residents need to know about CIDP, uh, which by definition has to have persisted for at least eight weeks? At least eight weeks. Okay. And then multifocal motor neuropathy with conduction block. Uh, and uh, which antibody again was that for MMN? Anti-GM1. Anti-GM1. So these are good things to know about. All right. Can you talk about... Um, the uh, syndromes associated with paraproteinemias, uh, and I know there's a huge number of these, but there's one or two that show up on exams. Yeah, so uh, paraproteinemias, most often diagnosed as MGUS, can lead to various types of neuropathy, and there are a whole host of antibodies that one can find. I think the most common one to probably know that seems to be tested a lot is anti-MAG, myelin-associated glycoprotein antibodies, uh, and these can present as a demyelinating neuropathy that for all intents and purposes can look very similar to CIDP and so often we'll test patients for this range of antibodies uh, when we're suspecting a diagnosis like CIDP. But unlike CIDP, they should have a monoclonal protein and CIDP often does not show that. Uh, one that is part of a larger syndrome would be POMS uh, disease, POMS standing for polyneuropathy, organomegaly, endocrinopathy, monoclonal protein and skin changes. Uh, and patients generally, especially on exams, will have features of many of these. Uh, the, the confirmatory test for POMS would be, uh, one, a nerve biopsy, but also you can measure a serum VEGF level, and that should be elevated. It's vascular endothelial growth factor. Okay, so uh, POEMS, 
uh, is polyneuropathy, organomegaly, endocrinopathy, M, -pro M protein, and skin changes. Uh, and I think the uh, polyneuropathy is often the most severe uh, manifestation, but that's one of the reasons that we look for monoclonal uh, proteins uh, with, with CM protein for uh, electrophoresis, for example, in people with neuropathy. And then, as you said, people really need to know about uh, neuropathies related to MGUS and, uh, and the um, anti antibodies to MAG uh, as a treatment for that. Um, I, one I didn't put on our list uh, to discuss but does come up is uh, prominent autonomic neuropathies can be related to amyloidosis, which mm -hmm. I guess falls into this category. So if residents see a uh, clinical vignette uh, where prominent autonomic neuropathy is playing a role, then one of the possibilities is amyloidosis. Absolutely, and that can usually be diagnosed definitively with a nerve biopsy. Great. All right, so brace yourselves uh, because we're going to talk about uh, inherited or genetic polyneuropathies and I think Jeff will try to keep this as an overview and then we can always dive a little bit deeper into this uh, if we need to but what are sort of the big uh, inherited polyneuropathies that uh, residents need to know about and what are some some ways in which they can organize their thoughts around that I think the one that everybody needs to know and is very common for examination purposes would be Charcot-Marie Tooth disease. And that's really a large spectrum of diseases. Uh, probably the big things to know would be that CMT1A is the most common. And that's due to a duplication of the PMP22 gene. CMT1B is right behind it, and that's a P0 mutation. All of the CMT1s are demyelinating. CMT2s are axonal. CMT3 is childhood onset, and then uh, those are probably the three worth knowing. There's CMT4, CMTX, and those again are categories of CMTs. Uh, I don't think the details are worth delving into uh, at this stage in your training, unless you're considering neuromuscular disease. So just to review, the CMTs, the numbers, I always had a hard time organizing this, but it really relates to the pattern of disease. Uh, and then there can be various genes that can produce that pattern. So, And also inheritance. So CMT1 and 2 are both dominant inherited. CMT4 is the sort of garbage basket for recessive inherited, and then CMTX would be X-linked. Okay, good to know about. So CMT1 and 2 are, are autosomal dominant inheritance. Uh, CMT1 is going to be predominantly demyelinating. CMT2 is predominantly axonal. Uh, and then, as you said, the other ones are less commonly identified. And as you said, probably the most common one seen on examinations is CMT1A, which is a demyelinating inherited neuropathy related to a duplication of the peripheral myelin protein PMP22 gene. And these clinically, these patients are in their teens or 20s and have had some problem with distal, usually leg weakness, uh, since late childhood. Often by the time of presentation, they'll have developed some of the stigmata of a chronic distal polyneuropathy, most commonly seen as pes cavus, so high arches, or hammer toes, that appearance that the toes have been hammered in from the front. Sometimes this is described as champagne bottle calves because they'll have very, very skinny distal legs and some preservation of the more proximal lower extremity muscles. Anything uh, people need to know about in terms of classic EMG findings in the CMT1 disorders? So you'll see demyelination that's quite severe and actually diffuse. So even in unaffected areas, you'll see some degree of slowing uh, in the sensory and motor nerves. But it should be fairly uniform as opposed to in a distal neuropathy where it's worse 
the farther out you go. One good way to distinguish that is if more proximal muscles are affected. Uh, in the lower extremity, we like to use the tibialis anterior as a good guide. So when you see an EMG of somebody whose uh, velocities are in the 30s or lower, and it seems to affect all of the muscles, that should make you think strongly about CMT type 1. And just for our, our residents, uh, if they haven't done a lot of EMGs so far, uh, velocities of 30 or lower are very low. So what's a, what's a normal conduction velocity range? Uh, usually it's at least above 40 in the lower extremities and 45 to 50 in the upper extremities. Okay. Yeah, I was uh, I was always taught that uh, classically diffuse very low conduction velocities was was a clue to the CMT1 disorders. Absolutely. Um, all right. Any other uh, genetic um, polyneuropathies? I know there's a million of them, but any other categories that uh, people need to know about? I think the one that's worth knowing would be uh, hereditary neuropathy with liability for pressure palsies or HNPP. Uh, the reason this is tested frequently is because it's uh, closely related to CMT type 1A, except it's due to a deletion of the PMP22 gene. Uh, the presentation is a little bit different as well. These patients are often normal until they're uh, mid to late teens when they start to develop frequent pressure palsies. So we think of a classic pressure palsy as uh, a uh, wrist drop from chronic compression of the uh, axilla, but they can really develop anywhere where the nerves are vulnerable. Foot drops are fairly common. Uh, ulnar neuropathies and median neuropathies are common. And these will recur sort of sporadically, but more often than you would expect in the average person and from less uh, compression of the nerve. So for instance, I had a patient recently who sat on her leg sort of on the couch watching a movie and then the next day had a foot drop and this recurred twice in her life which brought her to me and we actually discovered this mutation uh, through genetic workup. And my understanding is that people with HMPP have both pressure palsies but they can also have uh, over time a, a length dependent uh, demyelinating polyneuropathy as well superimposed on that. And when you EMG them you will see diffuse slowing even in unaffected nerves but it's not as severe as you see in CMT1A. Great. So uh, one of the ways that you can uh, distinguish HMPP from, say, a disorder that has conduction block as well, like multifocal motor neuropathy, I guess, is that HMPP, you should see that conduction block in areas that are commonly progressed, uh, uh, compressed. Correct. The elbow, the wrist, uh, the popliteal fossa, areas like that, I guess. Yeah, and the fibular head is another common one. Uh, and one thing that <clears throat> it's, it's hard to test people on uh, neuropathology for neuromuscular disease, but CMT1 is a classic target because it shows the onion bulb formation in the peripheral nerves. So it's a consequence of demyelination and remyelination over time. You see this disorganized concentric myelination that's much larger than you would expect to the point that you can actually have palpable bumps at demyelination sites in HNPP that are called temaculae, which is one of my favorite uh, etymologies is Latin for sausage. Yeah. Very good. I'm glad the Romans had sausages. <laughs> um, so uh, I don't think we necessarily have to do a lot of talking about this, but other than to make residents aware that there are a huge number, there is a huge number of other disorders, uh, genetic disorders, and one other category are the hereditary sensory and autonomic neuropathies, the HSAN uh, uh, neuropathy, and, and these often have uh, prominent sensory uh, dysfunction, including uh, uh, congenital uh, um, inability to feel pain, for example, mm -hmm. uh, and can also be associated with very profound uh, autonomic neuropathies. Uh, and uh, most of these, I think, are, are autosomal recessive, although there are uh, maybe some that are autosomal dominant, and these are some of the things that are screened for uh, uh, prenatally. Mm -hmm. 
And these are quite rare, but that doesn't stop them from testing you on your in-service and board examinations. So we may have a separate podcast to get into that once we get dive deeper into the weeds. But for now, just be aware of the hereditary sensory and autonomic neuropathies. In the next podcast of neuromuscular disorders, we will review neuromuscular junction disorders and myopathies. And those are two huge categories. But I think we got off to a great start and we've covered half of the peripheral nervous system in about uh, 40 minutes or so. So I think we did a good job. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, I'd like to thank my uh, sponsors, uh, MDF Reflex Hammers. Uh, Their Traumaner has a four plus rating on Amazon. It's a little reflex joke. And just remember, if it ain't a Traumaner, it ain't squat. (laughs) Perfect. That's great. That's fun.